0: Hi, and welcome to this week's episode and call of Planet Positive. I am Julian Guderlei. This is our virtual gathering and this week we feature Max Beaumont. Welcome, Max. We also have the founder of Planet Positive here, uh, Peter Crane. Welcome, Peter. Welcome. Good. Hello, everyone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Planet Positive is a global think tank, a venture capital advisory and accelerator serving to address humanity's most pressing needs and symbiotic existence with nature. This week, our feature is Max Beaumont, and Max graduated from the University of Warwick with a master's of physics. After graduating, he joined the European Space Agency as a systems engineer for a life support project aimed at extracting and recycling CO2 exhaled by astronauts. And during his time, he was working on the project. He planned and conducted laboratory tests on CO2 sorbents tailored to low concentration environments. And in 2010, he co-founded what is now Skytree, where he has authored three patents related to atmospheric c o two capture techniques, so I'm really excited to learn more with you today, max, and to you know follow you down the rabbit hole into skytree
1: yeah, thanks uh, thanks Julian, for that and uh, yeah, that <clears throat> I think I wrote that bio about six years ago, so I need to update that. Um, <laughs> it's quite quite techy um, but yeah, a real pleasure uh, to to be here, uh, everyone and Peter, especially, thank you for um for organizing. Um, I saw Ted did a global countdown this weekend, um, which I was part of, but um, you know, little did they know that you've been added for last, almost a year already Planet Positive. So I think uh, this is really important um, group um, that meets every week and, and I hope it continues uh, for the long, in the long term. Okay, so just to give you um, a little bit of a, um, background, uh, on myself. Um, so when I was really young, like, I mean, I basically, um, I basically grew up in like a ton of different countries. So I grew up in the Middle East. I grew up in uh, Bahrain, a small Island there. Um, after that, I moved to Austria, where I went to high school, international schools. Um, and then I went uh, to study physics as Julian said at, at work uni um before traveling the world for about six months with a friend and, and coming to holland so if you ask me what my nationality is it's really actually quite a difficult question for me uh i'd have to say i uh, i guess global citizen as the saying goes now um my dad was a corporate diplomat so he worked for coca-cola so uh so that was the reason for um the the, the amount that we moved around um and growing up like in the middle east is, was not as a scary experience as you would imagine back in the, uh, back in the eighties. Um, uh, it was just after the boycott, like, um, just after like the Shah had to be be, being deposed in Iran and things were actually pretty open. So I lived in Bari and people, women could wear what they wanted. People could drink. Uh, it was actually a very safe community and a ton of fun and also really, really sunny. So it was, we had it, we had a boat, uh, lived near to the sea. So it was actually quite a, quite a wonderful, like childhood, which I'm really grateful for. Um, then we moved to Vienna and all of a sudden the weather got about 20 degrees colder on average and (laughs) the days declined in their, in their, uh, length by about three hours. Um, and I went to a private high school. Um, at the time I was pretty small for my age. I didn't really understand my, my, um, environment. My dad traveled my entire life basically so he was uh, literally out of the country about 60 percent of the time so i didn't really see him very much or have too much contact there um and growing up then like in high school in vienna turned out to be pretty difficult for quite a few years it was actually um i really feared going to school for like many years uh in a row i was small i had acne i um i basically was seen as a victim and then designated as such at the age of 10, and then sort of proceeded to have that designation for the next uh, five, six, seven years in high school. Um, so yeah, so going to school was not always what was, was pretty difficult. Um, at the same time, my parents divorced. Um, and so I didn't really have that fatherly sort of figure to back me up. Um, And I thought it was normal being like a 12-year-old and being bullied and actually hating your life. Why would you tell anyone that? That's like private. And I had to be my own island because it was only my mom and I, right? So I had to look out for everybody. Um, So I couldn't be vulnerable, right? So I never told anyone about the bullying or about any of this, this crap was going on. I just like pushed through. So um, it wasn't all bad. Like I then shared the student council, I did have friends, I did a lot of sports and I traveled with my, with, with my mom and my family, so it wasn't all bad. Um, but it did leave me with a, um, a feeling of the need to, I think, prove myself, um, not only to my dad, but also to my colleagues, um, to like friends uh, in school who apparently I was not good enough for. So that deep desire to prove myself, like, I think was one of the reasons that from a very young age, I needed to start something, I needed to build something. Um, I also read like Richard Branson's autobiography when I was like 15 and got totally hooked. Uh, So when I moved to the UK, um, like at that point, um, my life had been pretty sheltered. So one one good point of that is because I didn't have an, a huge social life like I really I, I mean I got into physics and space and all this kind of stuff I read a ton I, I went to like um, NASA a couple of times at the school and um, basically wanted to be an astronaut so that's why I went to study physics um, in the UK and I'm really happy that that drove me there because it's much harder to go from business to science than it is from science to business. Um, So yeah, and then so while like uh, at the um, at at university, I saw that um, basically like doing a PhD was the only way to become an astronaut. So I was like, okay, screw that! I need more social contact in my life. I don't want to be stuck in a lab for the next five years in the windows. So I decided to abandon the astronaut idea. But I after going traveling around the world for like six months. I got a job offer from the European Space Agency and uh, to be a system engineer there. And at that point, it moved around my whole life. Um, so it was like a job in Holland. OK, that's cool. Let's go explore Holland. So that's what got me uh, over to over to here and into the space sector to begin with. Um, about two years in and, and working on this YouTube removal technology, um, which was pretty cool, like I met all the astronauts, sort the satellites, Worked worked with pretty cool space gear. Um, then um, I had an opportunity to uh, stay on on basically there. Um, it was a graduate program that I started with, but um, it was a it was a choice that I had to make because I knew that basically if I accepted the job, it was very good conditions. It was lovely there. I mean, Easter in, in Holland they have I think they have twelve tennis courts, outdoor football pitch, indoor football pitch squash court, swimming pool. I mean, it's kitted out. Um, I would be stuck there for the rest of my life. So it would have been a complete golden cage. Um, so instead, I decided to take the opportunity to apply to uh, a business incubation program that just kicked off at ESA that funded um, space technology spin-outs. And you know, at that time, I was still pretty into starting my own company. Um, and you know, at work, I had I had tried to afterwards, and I'd founded the Work Entrepreneur Society with some people. So I was pretty into it at that stage. So I thought, hey, you know, I know nothing about business, um, but <laughs> let's let's go let's go change the world. Um, had I known how much work it would have been, oh my god, I had zero idea. Um, but I went in completely naive and uh, just went at it, and basically that's how Skytree started out. So. Um, The the, uh, technology I was working on was basically an efficient CO2 scrubber uh, that had been developed by ESA for the last 10, 15 years. They tested about 100 different materials and they pinpointed this one as being the one selected for the space mission because of its performance and its stability. So um, while working on this project and applying to the incubation uh, program, um we were thinking hey if this is so good for the spacecraft cabin you know this might be able to work for earth's atmosphere at least we should try it because there's too much CO2 in our atmosphere and you know we we should be looking at solutions to do something about that um and that was the idea so no business case no um no clients or anything um we we picked up 50,000 and we went straight into prototyping and straight into just converting this process to, rather than capture CO 2 from the spacecraft, cabin capture it from the atmosphere. Um, so since then uh, we've grown into a team of like 15 strong. Um, we've done about one and a half million euros in revenue today. We've, we've brought in about the same amount of funding um, and we have our first co-development pro- project within the automotive sector. And basically um, what we're doing is we're focusing on the materials. So we're focusing on ourselves being a materials company. Uh, We work with about three or four external institutions, uh, academic as well as corporate, um, that basically funnel us new materials that they're working on, they're developing. And then we test them in our rig and we characterize them extremely quickly and accurately uh, to like the gram per second. We We're also able to characterize like the shape, the weight, the flow, the pressure differential, the energy for, for recharging the sorben, um, all within a couple of hours. Uh, to give you a bit of a um, comparison, the way Airbus was measuring the CO2 that they were capturing with their system for the International Space Station was using a plastic bag. So they would literally just vent CO2 into the plastic bag that they captured and then measure the volume of the bag. So that's how it was done at industry at that time. So we've managed to basically um, transform that into something that is highly accurate um, and can characterize CO2 capture materials extremely quickly and and also test the different shapes. Um, And so based on that, what we're doing is we're building a platform where we can use this process and our expertise to apply CO2 capture processes um, across industries. and in order to basically scale CO2 capture technology. And over time, we want to like build our resources and build our knowledge to the extent that we can actually do this on a pretty large scale, and then start using CO2 in the air as a commodity. Um, but we're not there yet, and, and frankly, um, no one is there yet. So this is why we're basically looking at um, finding commercial avenues to actually scaling C2 capture technology that today, um, that add value today, rather than 10 years or five years from now, um, that don't depend on government grants, that are purely commercial, um, and that people actually want. Um, And we found that, as I said, um, in the automotive sector. And actually, Julian, if I can just share my slides and screens now? Absolutely, yeah. Great, and we'll dive into that. Let's see. Okay, so yeah, okay, so basically, um, there are a ton of different sectors we can scale this CO2 removal um, technology into, but I'll start with the one we're starting with, um, which is the automotive sector. And so, basically, what we're doing in the automotive sector is um, we're building in CO2 filters into the car cabin so that the air inside your um, car can be encapsulated and enclosed without taking in fresh air. So basically we're converting your, your electric vehicle cabin into a spacecraft cabin essentially, completely hermatically sealing it, allowing a single volume of air to be continuously recirculated. Like why is this beneficial? So this is the first product and what it looks like by the way. So why is it beneficial? Um, so basically by recirculating air uh, rather than continually drawing in new air um, we're drastically reducing the energy consumption of the heating ventilation and air conditioning actually by up to 80 percent especially in cold in cold weather um, because we're only heating a single volume of air and then maintaining maintaining its temperature Um, to give you a sense of why this is energy efficient um, the main reason that electric vehicles have lower range in cold weather, or like in winters, um, is because air conditioning systems can take up to 75% of the energy consumption of the car, including the drivetrain. It's a ridiculous amount of energy it consumes. So, by making this process more efficient, we'll be able to extend the range of electric vehicles in all weather conditions, enabling and accelerating the, our transition to EVs uh, as we go. <coughs> This is another shot of it by the way the, the advantage of doing that is that basically um, another advantage of doing that is that basically not only are we going to be able to extend range inside of cars um, but we're also going to be able to hugely improve the air quality within the car um, why because as well as drastically less error that we're bringing in, we're bringing in drastically less pollution. And that pollution that does come in, we're filtering again and again and again because the air has been recirculated. So we can reach filtration efficiencies that are far higher than anything possible by a single pass filter. Um, so for example, the 40 liter um, HEPA filter that the Model S sports, right? will be able to beat that filtration efficiency easily with a much smaller filter. So this is the evolution of the product, by the way. This is uh, on the right. You can see our first version, and that was fully automated. And the, on the left is the second version now that we're assembling. And this is going to be now basically model A, so quite close to manufacturing design. Um, so yeah, as I said, we're we've uh, we're working with a car company right now to. Um, get this into one of their concept vehicles. It's a very cool electric vehicle startup that, that's actually a solar power car um, based here in, in Holland. And once we've proven it in that vehicle um, next year, so first half of next year, we're going to point to that and then use that as a basis to get the big boys in such as Volkswagen and, and BMW um, to incorporate this into their vehicle programs. Um, the market is it's obviously huge. I mean, 90 million cars are sold every year. Um, we would sell this at 200 euros a, um, a system, but the cost would only be 60 to 80 euros. Um, and that's including the co 2 filters to give you comparison, the system and the international space station that was actually capturing less CO2 than what this can do, uh, cost 15 million euros to build and, and integrate. So we brought that process down to like, much lower cost mainly due to design improvements and just simplifying the process on the international space station they use superheated steam and the vacuum of space we use hot air using an electric heater the other two components are actuator and a fan that's it so that's the main reason we've been able to get the cost down so drastically but this is the so this is just a platform technology, as I say. Um, we have traction here. This is our go-to market strategy. This is where we're building the company, but this is just the beginning. These are the applications that we can go into using this platform. So basically, just think any form of transportation that like, houses people and needs to condition the air, such as planes, trains, long-distance buses. All those can benefit from the pollution, so air quality improvements, as well as the range extension improvements that electric vehicles can. Um, But and then at the same time, we can apply this to buildings, and this is where the real savings come into uh, to place in terms of CO two savings and basically impact to the world. If you look at the growth of the HVAC system, sorry, HVAC industry in India alone, the sales of additional hvac units and their respective energy consumption over the next 30 years to 2050 is going to contribute 0.5 degrees of warming to the earth by that time so it's because basically 70 to 80 percent of india is just not industrialized There's just, it's got such a huge way to go so there's so much growth to be had there that will represent a huge Uh, increase in energy demand due to buildings and infrastructure being built and air volumes that need to be conditioned. So by making these HVAC systems 70 to 80% more efficient, we'll be drastically uh, reducing the carbon footprint um, of India, (laughs) let alone the building sector. Um, And then of course, instead of range extension, what we'll be doing is is saving uh, building operators 20 to 30% of their energy costs each year. And we predict a payback time of about 18 months um, based on that economic saving alone without even taking into account the uh, air quality benefits. So that's the application and, and that, this is our team, by the way, <laughs> I forgot I had to slide in here. This is our team, um, we, we're, this is not all of us, but uh, this is an outing we had about three weeks ago before the lock, new lockdown measures were just put in place. Um, we're all based in Amsterdam. Uh, we have two labs here, a testing workshop, and our offices actually on the University of Amsterdam Science Campus. We're moving. Uh, we're moving to office next uh, next year. And um, so yeah, so that's that's really the the idea. But like the the why and the long term vision goes further from that. So once we've scaled this technology in air quality and energy efficiency applications, my dream is that we can apply this on a really large scale uh, to basically filtering CO2 out of the air to supply co as feedstock for a ton of things. Cement production is a huge, will have huge amount for CO2 going forward, especially CO2 neutral or cement that can sequester CO2, uh, plastic production, fuel production, all these things need carbon. We'll need to find carbon neutral sources for that carbon uh, and the only way to go forward as a society is to become circular, so we need to do something about it. Um, so yeah, that's like my five, ten year goal, basically, Skytree. And uh, yeah, so I mean, that that's it really. Um, what I'm looking for from this group is um, basically a a hand in and advice and support in our fundraising round. So we're raising a $7 million round at the moment. Um, We have some traction from strategic investors, but we're really looking for a US lead so we can get the best quality support on board for Skytree. So VCs that have clean tech experience, get hardware, a fund to work with, you know, we're just looking for that kind of profile basically. Um, And then we've also filed for a Delaware C Corp. So, we'll be opening up our business operations over uh in the us like in california um once we can travel there next year and so it will be great just to just to get to know people over that side of the pond thank you
0: thank you so much max this sets us up for a really great uh q a and, and and questions and answers like wow what a, what a presentation i'm totally with you we will need this circular kind of kind of way, especially when it comes to carbon. So I'll, I'll pass it to partners first. Who is, who's curious, who has questions? I know Joe, Joe, you're already raising your hand. I would have called on you in a second. Um, please go ahead, yeah.
2: So Max, really glad you can make it on the call. I, I've got to disclose, I've known Max for many years and watched him progress from university onwards. And I've seen you do great things, Max, and your team. Um, I wanted you to speak to the other applications, because I know that um, you actually, your first application was for agriculture and you were putting your technology alongside uh, factories and capturing the, the carbon and helping optimize greenhouse, um, uh, plants grown in greenhouses. And I also had a, so if you could talk to that, because mm-hmm. I think there are other people on this call that might be interested in that. And the mm-hmm, other sure. thing I would like you to discuss is um, when you're talking about um, at the moment COVID and what's happening with um, getting clean air into buildings. I know that you've been working with some air conditioning companies about how you can optimize that air conditioning and make that work better with the with the HEPA filters.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I can uh, I can speak to both. Uh, thanks, thanks, Joe, and yeah, you have known me for like ever. <laughs> um, so by the way joe hosts fantastic dinner parties like fear of invited just go they're so much fun anyway um, so basically uh yeah the, the the reverse of basically the CO2 extraction process that we employ within the, within cars can be applied to the atmosphere where we scrub CO2 from the air and then we actually vent that CO2 into a process that needs it um so um, we can do this probably like at cost right now compared to commercially other commercial methods of providing CO2 to about a couple of kilos a day um, using the processes that we have right now. And people are like saying, oh, okay, but are we talking tons here for beverage carbonation, industrial greenhouses? Yes, we are, and we're not there yet. But there are tons, there are plenty of applications that actually use CO two on a much smaller scale that we can just roll into now and build the technology around. Um, the main one is vertical farming. Uh, vertical farming is, you know, is, is basically um, a much greener way of a much sustainable form of agriculture, and is taking off everywhere right now. Um, and the volumes of CO two generally required are obviously much much lower because they're contained in small warehouses in cities or in buildings themselves uh and we get approached by a vertical farm every few weeks asking uh if we can apply this technology to their farm um so we can do that at cost right now and and it will be one of our nearer terms you 2 supply applications uh oh sorry price parity the by the way the other advantage of our unit would be that like CO2 is supplied today if if it's not like an industrial level where it's literally piped to the site, like for enhanced oil recovery or for industrial greenhouses, Um, CO2 is literally just shipped in 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 the form of cylinders or resupplied in cryogenic tanks that then fill cryogenic chambers on site. Really like a lot of hassle, a lot of infrastructure and quite costly. So we would just um, basically be able to provide a plug and play form of CO2 where basically all you need is access to the air. Just install it outside of your greenhouse, turn it on and you're good to go. No dependence on external suppliers, And actually over a couple of years, it'll be much lower cost than, than alternative forms of CO2 as well. COVID, um, so this goes to what I was talking about in terms of the um, multi-pass filtration. So being able to... They do this in planes already, actually, a lot. Um, so. I just went on a trip to Rome, probably slightly irresponsibly, a few few weeks ago, and the plane was completely packed, and I complained about it on Facebook, and I got a lot of contentious replies. So I really read into it, and actually, um, planes recirculate air at the rate of like every two minutes, the entire cabin volume is exchanged, and they pass that air through very high level or like high quality HEPA filters. So air inside of planes is actually pretty good quality. Um, we would be able to basically create um uh much higher like recirculation rates. So we'd be able to actually go from um 50 or 40, 50% recirculation to ah uh, wait, I'm missing it. i'm messing this up. Basically if you have a filter right now and in an HVAC system it's brought into the car or the building, it's passed through that filter, and then it goes into the in, in volume uh, of air inside the building. Um, you have single pass. By basically maximizing the recirculation and recircling the air, that air can be um, passed through um, those filters again and again and again. So if you have a filter that's filtering out viruses, um, let's say in a ward in a hospital that needs to be insulated from potential like infected areas or infected air volumes where ICE units are placed. Right? That will be a way to basically insulate those sections of the hospital by basically recirculating air within those sections so that any virus that does actually creep into that part of the hospital will be filtered out a lot quicker rather than the air simply just spreading throughout throughout the whole hospital quite quickly in traditional as it does in traditional HVAC systems. So yeah, so it's a bit of a um I don't yeah we haven't really looked into it to be honest, but there there there's certainly potential there. Yes. So thank you. That 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 was basically my answer. Also there were there are a few of other small scale C2 supply applications such as remote water treatment and For example, CO2 is required to stabilize pH levels to make it drinkable. So um, we could provide CO2 to like distillation plants, processing plants in remote parts of the world more easily than it can be provided right now and enable drinking water around the world more easily. Um, uh, Yeah, and we could... um, also look at like what we're also looking at is potentially beverage carbonation on a small scale so um like your soda stream application replacing c2 cylinders from that um with our unit instead
0: thank you max joe your question your question is answered anything else you'd, you'd love to add
2: one more question Um, i know that you've been talking to some big car companies one of them based in near very near silicon valley Um, so you're been getting a lot of interest from the majors including one of the very large formerly uk owned car companies now owned by internationally Um, how quickly do you think you'll you'll be um, able to scale into these cars
1: yeah. So we're going to go for first product sales by next year. And we're aiming uh first like product off the line inside of a car or on the road by end of 2022. Now that will be on a, on a smaller scale that will likely be together with our EV scale up partners and might not be with a, with a VW or BMW. Um, but like in terms of just getting to market, that's, that's what we're looking at um what we do see in the automotive sector is extremely quick uptake of new technology so for example electric windows like within five years 80 percent of car models basically like luxury end car models basically installed electric uh, windows so uptake rates of new technology is pretty high in the automotive sector so our our main challenge is getting the first one in uh like on the road and then after that it will be that classic hockey stick curve
2: And one more question. Um, You have patents, I understand.
1: Yes, yes. I forgot to mention that. Thank you, Joe, for that. Yes, we have three patents (laughs) um, based around our material. Uh, We actually, upon funding, we're going to file four more uh, to broaden our patent portfolio and basically also include a material patent in that portfolio as well.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you, Joe. Patents are expensive, though. Yeah,
0: patents are a whole other level. Um, There's a question from Will and the question, I'll I'll read it, he sent it to me in the chat. It says, if your two main inputs are heat and also power for a fan, can you minimize cost by reusing heat or power from other processes?
1: Yeah, we we certainly could. So I think that's a really good question. Um, Yeah, what we see is that like in electric vehicles, there are generally less sources of waste heat. So it's harder uh, to basically retrieve waste heat than for an ICE vehicle. Um, but there certainly are sources and we're looking at that and it can also certainly benefit like other applications and processes. Um, what we're also looking at is using the existing HVAC fan so that we don't need to add our own fans so that we use that airflow that already pre-exists in, in, in basically uh, the air conditioning flows.
0: Awesome. I'm, I'm curious. I have a general question, Max. I feel like you're a, a total expert expert in this field of, you know, carbon upcycling technology. And so maybe, um, you know, from your perspective, what are some of the frustrations in the marketplace right now? And, you know, some of those bottlenecks where you see like really quick solutions, um, you know, if, if you get, there's more access to funding or your patents are successfully filed.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, so like, as with like hardware funding is always more of an issue than with software, right? Because I mean, you're actually building stuff, so you need to buy stuff and procure it and then put it together and bring in engineers to do that and not just depend them one whiz software engineer to program your app. So it's, it's more cost intensive. Um, and also the time to market is, is longer like development cycles is longer, uh, longer because that hardware needs to be qualified and tested and then road tested. Um, so we just mainly need to accelerate the deployment of the products by expanding our engineering team. Um, and, and the way we're going to do that is through funding. So, uh, that's, that's one of the main bottlenecks. Um, I mean, yeah, I think now with the renewed interest on, uh, like the climate, the last two years, any thanks to Greta. um, We basically have, uh, there's a lot, lot more interest in industries now to transition towards more sustainable processes. Uh, so we're seeing a pickup in people approaching the number of people approaching us and organizations approaching us. Um, the green new deal, just like 1 trillion euros of funding within the EU that will be spent on clean tech, uh, up to 2030. Uh, might actually funnel down to us through through our EU grant application that we just put in. Um, so we see that like when we started this ten years ago, direct air capture and CO two capture generally was seen as a technology that uh, was expensive, proven not to work, and no one was really interested in funding. Especially as there had been um, there been a lot of VC's burnt in the clean tech bubble in the early two thousands like Sol solar i think if you remember that solar energy company so a lot of companies a lot of investors um were pretty standoffish at that point but what we see now is like climate tech investing is the largest growing sector of of venture capital six percent of all venture capital went into climate tech this year to date um and um so that's really in our favor now as well so i think that bottleneck it's like being overcome by like the macro trends we see
3: yeah, sp- speaking to that point, Max, uh, I I read somewhere that it was estimated that $20 trillion of venture capital will be deployed uh, to address climate solutions over the next decade. I've, have you heard figures along those lines? Or is that a little high, maybe? Yeah, not that big,
1: but like I welcome it for
3: sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think the investment climate environment, I should say, is um, definitely changing rapidly as people become aware of um the need to to create massive change and very quickly so yeah and uh, again really thank you for your presentation today it was wonderful anyone else have any questions for max yeah for the question thank you max for that talk just in, in, in regards to health and <clears throat> recycling oxygen, I know that's a, a close container. And, and what are the health ramifications for for long periods spent regularly inside a container like that?
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, uh, so basically less than spending it inside of a container, like inside of a building or, or a, a car that's packed full of people in today's in today's like status quo, um, because basically that feeling of stuffiness you get after a long meeting, like a full room. Obviously, none of us are really suffering from that this year. But like say in two thousand nineteen, when that was the case, um, the reason for that feeling was CO two build up. That was the only reason. Um, the same thing applies to long car journeys. Like after an hour or two of driving, air feels a little heavy. that's CO two. So we actually stabilize CO two levels lower than basically, base levels found in, in traditional HVAC setups, um, because we extract so much CO two in the process. In terms of oxygen, uh, because of basically leakage through opening of windows, seams, and doors, and things like that, um, there's basically about ten percent air leakage in any closed volume, uh, and that's enough to keep oxygen levels at like a healthy, like a healthy level. So we, based on actual tests we've done with, with oxygen sensors. We don't measure any reduction in oxygen. Uh, that's that's meaningful. So uh, so yeah, that's it. I hope does that answer your question. Cool.
0: Any other questions in the in the room? Uh, it's um it's rare that we can dive that deep into that topic. So if there's anything please make sure to share it or unmute yourself or share it in the chat.
1: If anyone's in Amsterdam, look us up. Uh, happy to give you a little tour of our facility. Meet some people the team.
3: Great, yeah. I hope to visit Europe soon, uh, as soon as they let us in back into the union there. <laughs> uh, people don't like Americans traveling to their countries right at the moment. so. Uh, uh, hopefully that'll change in the near future. And uh, yeah, again, thanks thanks so much, Max. Um, does anyone else, partners or otherwise, have anything they'd like to share uh, with some of the few minutes we have left? Anything about what you're working on that, that uh, they'd like to share, anyone?
0: I could share. I could share a short little thing. So, um, sure, great. Something exciting. I'm working on in context with the Green Planet Blue Planet podcast, and you know, I encourage all of you to subscribe if you haven't yet. Is I'm um, I'm part of the Buckminster Fuller Institute's um, decade. It's the first year in the decade of a design science studio, and so that goes back to Bucky Fuller's um, idea of you know creating a design science decade. And so the crew around the, the Bucky Fuller Institute has basically um, said the 2020s are another, another start to create a whole decade of design revolution. And so one of the words that's really, you know, hitting home in that incubator and cohort, and it's a six months kind of creative um, incubator that, you know, there's, there'll be a new branding resulting out of it. There'll be different forms of storytelling that comes out of it. Um, lots of art, lots of design challenges. And one of the words, and that's what I think is relevant, maybe to share here right now, is that for those of us who believe and can and are like full steam in it, we are in the decade of regenissance. So that's a neologism, a new word, uh, regenerative renaissance, right? And so only if we're actually truly seeing it, believing it, and you know, um, maybe holding in the in the storm of mainstream media, and and are able to say this is actually a decade of regenerative renaissance only then it, it will truly be one. And so somehow I felt inspired to share that this morning that, um, when, you know, when we talk about carbon upcycling technology and sky trees mission, or if we talk about, um, alcohol distillation, like last week, there's, there's a long way to go and a lot of work still to do. And so, um, however we can support each other to make it a decade that truly counts. And that we look back on proudly, I think, creating this regenerative renaissance is is a big piece of it. And with that, and maybe that's the last thing I can share on on the Buckminster Fuller's Design Science Studio uh, cohort that I'm in right now, the need for somewhat of a new dictionary. So obviously we won't invent a whole new language, but uh, a language that supports the way we now relate, that supports the way we incorporate nature into the equation um, that supports us kind of moving beyond the way things have been have been going so far. And I saw some jazz fingers or zoom fingers from, from Shane. Um, it's not easy to navigate those lands of like a new dictionary, because obviously we could make up all kinds of silly words, but it's, it's important to, you know, get that, that region started.
4: Julian, do you have a link? To- oh, I don't know if this is a micro institute with Brookman, but do you have a link to it? I work with, an advisor to future forecasting and prototyping from in LA and I just did an extensive project in a similar spirit with the Royal College of Art in London um anyway I'm just wondering if there's any synergies so sorry my voice is a little bit compromised right now <laughs> hopefully I don't have COVID I, I need that app that Peter was talking about um or we we heard the problem. but anyway yeah if um if you could send a link, that'd be great. Oh, you just did, Never mind. Great. I
0: just did in the chat. Yeah, so this is just a general website um, of the Design Science Studio hosted by the
3: Buckminster Fuller Institute. Yeah, and, and speaking of Buckminster Fuller, um, I'm inspired to read my favorite quote, which is, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. So I thought I'd share that quote all-time favorite.
4: To your point um, oh, sorry, was somebody else wanting to speak? No, no, go ahead. Oh, I think oh, language is so ex- extraordinarily important and we take certain words for granted. So I'm glad you're re- you're thinking about how to create new words because uh, they really set the stage for discussion especially if old words are you know laden with certain baggage or misconceptions and so forth. So I, I, I applaud that effort.
3: Thank you. yeah, It's really about um, changing the messaging around how we respond to the climate situation and uh, making it more positive and engaging and um, you know action oriented, but um, you know really not so much fear based, but more um, let's come together and lift each other up in a positive way. And um, do good to uh, like, while we're honoring this great gift of life that we have, and that we share with so much um, other life, and uh, just make it about really honoring and um, you know positive action rather than just oh no you know the catastrophe's coming. We have the technology that we need to solve all these issues, and it's about coming together and um, working together to to deploy that tech and to take the action, the regenerative action, the farming, the Um, you know, carbon sequestration and and circular economy work that, um, that will allow us to move past this challenge. So, yeah, thank you. I hope you truly enjoyed
0: this one. You took some insights away, something you can apply for your own life or something you want to share with a friend. If you truly enjoy Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, the episodes I make, and the guests and interview partners I feature, make sure to subscribe, leave a review on the podcast on your favorite app on Spotify or Apple Podcast. Share it with a friend. And if you feel inspired, Make sure to support this podcast. There are plenty of ways to get in touch with me, leave a monthly recurring financial support on anchor.fm or simply in the show notes of this episode wherever you're tuning into. This podcast is really just about to get started featuring, showcasing and gathering some of the most badass planetary change makers that are making this the regenerative decade on planet Earth. Wherever you are in the world, have yourself a stellar day.